Hey everybody, welcome back to Grey Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s, at least normally. We're going to be breaking our format today and just kind of having a conversation uh, that's really important, really valuable, and that I've been excited about for, frankly, months, uh, and it's finally here. Uh, my name is Chad. Like I said, I use he, him pronouns. I'm joined by two very special guests who've become good friends of mine. Uh, let me have you each introduce yourselves, uh, give us your pronoun usage, and tell us a little bit about your relationship to the X-Men community. Uh, Gabriella, would you like to go first? Sure. Um, my name is Gabriella Garbero. My pronouns are she, her. And um, I am uh, someone with a disability, and um, I have a blog that's called The Girl Who Sits, where I blog about disability. Um, I recently graduated from law school and I'm set to, to take the bar very, very soon. So wish me luck. Um, but, mm -hmm. uh, thanks. Um, in college, I got really into X-Men and it was in a really significant time in my life where I was kind of coming to terms with my disability and my sense of self and my sense of womanhood and making a lot of changes in my life. And um, I found X-Men First Class first and I watched it and I was I was really, really moved by it. And I was really touched by the identity aspect of being a mutant and what that meant to them and how they talked about it. And then I went back and watched the other movies and I thought, you know, wow, I've seen these before, but I didn't really see them. You know, I, I didn't really absorb the stories like I am now. And um, ever since then, I've been in love with X-Men. Um, reading the comics, watching the movies, you know, very hopeful for the new uh, show on Disney plus. Let's hope they don't mess it up. <laughs> but, the Leewalds um, are back for that. They are not, and so is Larry Houston. I'm so excited for it. <laughs> uh, and then Paul, go ahead. Hey, so I'm Dayspring. I have a podcast called Power of X-Men. And we sort of have this micro community going on over on Instagram and my pronouns are he, him, and I have been a fan of X-Men since probably, I, gosh, what, like 1993? And I've been, I, I, I was very lucky to have found X-Men at the time that I did because, you know, I, I was very young and my brain was still cooking and I was able to absorb a lot of great messages and themes in those X-Books. And, you know, I always tell the story that my cousin, my primo Roy, he he would look at the X-Men and he would see Wolverine's claws popping and Storm conjuring the weather. And there was nothing wrong with that, but he, he only saw the superhero aspects of what it meant to be a mutant and to be an X-Man. And, and I was dealing with it on a very different level. I saw the mutant metaphor and to be in fourth grade, I believe that's where I was at in 1993. Um, and, and, and to have this idea of otherness implanted in me and that there was a school somewhere far, far away that welcomed other people and loved you regardless of, of your background and who you were was just very special for me and planted so many seeds for me as I came into fruition as an adult. So the X-Men just mean the world to me. And obviously, as, as you know, Chad, I think and talk about X-Men like every second of the day. <laughs> <laughs> They are a big part of my life as well. I'll, uh, I've shared a lot of my stories on the podcast, but I'll share one I haven't shared before. When I was a senior in high school, I was a little closeted Mormon boy. 
And we had to write a major thesis uh, in order to graduate in one of our kind of honors classes. And I chose to write about the X-Men. And the take I the, the take I had in my paper when I was uh, you know, 17 turning 18 was that the X-Men uh, represented uh, cultural diversity and acceptance of kind of the other. Uh, and this was back in the 90s. We didn't have a lot of gay characters, but there was a lot of cultural diversity uh, mixed in. I, uh, I talked about the diversity in characters. You know, Colossus is both the strong man, but he's also a painter. Uh, just kind of these different spaces where we could have, uh, you know, Nightcrawler, who's a, a, a circus performer, but also a priest. Uh, these these complications or contradictions in character. Um, but I've been a super fan of the X-Men for a long, long time. My day job is as a therapist. I'm a clinical social worker. Uh, so I have researched uh, cultural competency and uh, privilege in a lot of aspects and, and taught classes. And so part of my favorite thing about the podcast I'm running now is conversations about these concepts. Um, let me introduce three points really quickly as we begin our focused discussion today. Number one, the X-Men were created back in the 1960s. And this was a time in kind of a comic book cultural revolution. Uh, superheroes back then were often very larger than life. They didn't have many flaws. And when Marvel kind of launched the Fantastic Four, we started seeing flawed, complicated heroes. Uh, the Thing did not want to be in his orange Rocky form and he hated himself. And Daredevil was blind with a radar sense. And uh, Spider-Man was the, the science nerd who made a mistake that resulted in the death of his uncle. I mean, we started seeing very consequential stories right away. And in the X-Men, we have a number of characters over the years that have appealed to people who don't necessarily feel like they get a voice in other places in the comics. Now, Marvel's done an amazing job of this over the years, but the character number that stands out from X-Men number one as being so different than anything you see elsewhere is Charles Xavier, who is bald, who has the strongest mind on the planet, and who is in a wheelchair. And we're going to talk a lot about the concept of ableism, which brings me to the second point before we define that. Uh, we do have sliding time here in Marvel world, right? <clears throat> we have this idea that the, the characters who were created in the 60s uh, are still the same characters we're working with 60 years later. The world has changed. We are not in the same place. We do not have the same understandings of race or gender or sexuality or disability or ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, than we did. And it is okay to apply a modern lens to old stuff, even if we recognize that the intent of the writers at the time was different than what we are analyzing it with now in our current lives. So we uh, we want to be careful not to label creators, but we also still have the ability to analyze their work. Uh, and then the third point, and then I'll just put this out quickly. We recently had a couple of conversations on the podcast uh, about the character El Tigre in X-Men number 25 and X-Men number 26 who is a Central American character uh, who has some problematic portrayal issues. And as I emphasized in those issues, it's again, okay to analyze with a critical eye, but I do think it's very crucial to have people who have some of the same cultural background to be the ones leading those conversations. Uh, uh, so with that, I am really, really honored uh, uh, Dayspring, you and I have been friends for a while. I'm thrilled to have you back, but I'm really honored to have Gabriella on here today. When I was considering this uh, this podcast, 
uh, I, I reached out to a few people online and I ended up uh, in research discovering Gabriella's blog, which is called The Girl Who Sits. And she has a really beautiful post about Charles Xavier. And I reached out to her on Twitter. Uh, and We've kind of been chatting ever since. Um, Gabriella, if you are willing to, uh, let's begin with the concept of what ableism is. Despite frequent conversations, I think a lot of people don't really understand this as a concept. It's uh, relatively new to a lot of ears. Uh, so let's uh, let's kind of begin there. Yeah, so ableism is um, defined differently by everyone, obviously, just like, you know, racism, just like sexism. It depends on of what the intent is for the most part. Um, but I think um, when talking about ableism, it is really important to look at things through a modern lens because even when society was different, the people who were disabled, who were hearing those messages were not feeling them differently than we would feel them today. Yeah. So even back then when things, like, I guess I'm trying to say, um, there's not really like a, oh, that's just how it was back then. Um, lately in the disability community, we've been leaning a lot away from that because it's really harmful um, to say, oh, back then people didn't really mind that they couldn't get into buildings because there was no accessibility law. It was fine. People were fine being in bed all day because nobody had a wheelchair. People were fine you know, being excluded if they didn't act quote unquote normal, they were fine with it. That's just how it was when really now we're starting to unfold how it was for people back then. And there was a lot of trauma that was never talked about back then. Um, a really good example that I just wanted to talk about was um, the X-Men started in 1963. And that was the year that John F. Kennedy was assassinated and his sister, Rosemary, um, I don't know if anybody knows her backstory, but she ended up being institutionalized because she had a traumatic birth situation. And I'm, I don't want to go into like a ton of medical detail of what happened, but she was institutionalized. And so John F. Kennedy was really um, an amazing advocate for deinstitutionalization. And so that was kind of when things started to come out um, as far as, hey, maybe it wouldn't be best to send your kids away if they're disabled. Maybe it would be best to leave them in the home or to send them out into the community or to have them you know, live a pretty normal life. And so it really is amazing that everything kind of happened the way it did because not very long after X-Men came out, you know, the Civil Rights Act was passed. And then not very long after that, um, disabled people started becoming really successful activists as far as um, you know, the Rehab Act and then eventually the ADA and all of the laws that eventually kind of gave us civil rights. So it's really, it's kind of like a very serendipitous timing that all of this happened because I think Xavier kind of reflects that change in a really profound way. And so even though at first it seems kind of ableist the way he's represented, and in some ways it really is, um, as time went on, to see that change in how he's talked about and how he talks about himself as a character is really, really beautiful and I think really, really profound. Gabriella is so funny. Oh, go ahead. Gabriella is so funny because I had the same exact things in my note about Rosemary Kennedy. I, 
I used to work at HarperCollins, as I mentioned before, we hit record and we published a book on her. And one of the things I wanted to note about this is that um, before Kennedy, we had FDR who was did not acknowledge, did not publicly acknowledge that he was in a wheelchair and the sort of things that did towards people and representation was so detrimental. But then you had the JFK administration with Rosemary, who not only had a traumatic birth, was then institutionalized and lobotomized. So the fact that that was coming to the forefront was such a powerful message. And that's when we saw a lot of these movements finally taken off in the 60s. So when you get a character like Xavier, and, and I, I will agree with what you said, that in certain aspects, there is this ableist you know, perspective on him. At the same time, looking at it from the it, as being a byproduct of the time, having a character who is the most powerful on the planet just defied literary tropes at the time and did a lot for, for putting it out there. And I do believe Stan Lee, think of his original intent was as progressive as he could have been at the time for it. So I think uh, just to put into context, I'm going to presume I'm going to treat this with kid gloves for just a second. Over the last couple of years, we've had a lot of really hard conversations as a culture about race and about white privilege and the murder of George Floyd and conversations about police violence really opened up a lot of really hard conversations to things that had been there for a long time, but a lot of the public had been unwilling to go there. It's hard for people to learn how to talk about difficult issues, right? So white privilege is very simply the concept of you don't have to go around thinking about what your race is or about how people react to you because you're part of the dominant culture. We could have a similar uh, conversation about straight privilege. If you are someone who is straight, you don't have to walk around thinking about how people will react if you come out or how you uh, how people portray you when you uh, when you have a same sex partner. You don't have to think about as a white person how black people have been portrayed in the media or gay people have been portrayed in the media. So similar to that, but different, of course, is we kind of have uh, abled privilege, if you will, people who do not have disabilities don't have to think about what the world is like for those with disabilities, nor do they have to think about how people with disabilities are often portrayed in the media. So I'm kind of simplifying the conversation, but sometimes it just helps to kind of extend our brains and our hearts in that space. So let's begin our conversation today uh, by just talking about how people with disabilities are often portrayed in Hollywood culture uh, or in the print medium. Uh, let's start there. Well, so I'm I'm gonna talk first, if that's okay. I was a film studies major in college, so this was like a huge part of what I studied as an undergrad. Um, and it's really bad. <laughs> um, it's it's gotten a lot better over the last few years in some ways, and in other ways it hasn't progressed at all. But you know, back when people with disabilities started being represented in movies and shows and other media. Um, It was usually by a non-disabled writer, which is its own can of worms about why non-disabled writers were given more jobs than disabled writers. That's still happening today with writers and with actors and with artists and all kinds of other jobs. Um, But uh, the fact that that was happening back then um, kind of led to 
a very strange framing of disability um, from my point of view. Now, I was born with my disability. Um, it's a physical disability. It's a neuromuscular disease called spinal muscular atrophy. So I'm not paralyzed. I don't have um, any other kinds of disabilities that would help me have insight to those. And we're not a monolith. So I'm sure it's different for people with different disabilities. But, um, you know, there's always this kind of mentality of like, oh, well, it'd be really nice if we didn't have to worry about disability because we don't really know how to talk about it. And so, you know, in X-Men, especially, like there are times where Professor X would astral project and he would not be disabled when he's actually projecting. And it really seems like a shortcut to just not have to worry about the disability when really there are a lot of ways that you should worry about the disability and not have it be the central focus of the story. But because people are not used to dealing with it, they kind of make it into a central issue. It's sort of the, that issue of you see disabled main characters sometimes, but the story is always about their disability almost. It's never really about other aspects of them and other identities they have primarily. Um, and I think that problem still persists, but I do think it's getting a lot better um, in part because of the internet and because, you know, people have blogs now. I have a blog now. I blog about my disability all the time. I talk about what my life is like and um, I'm not institutionalized. There are many, there are way fewer people in institutions now. So going to the store, you might see somebody in a wheelchair with, you know, <laughs> using a wheelchair and a hundred years ago, you would never see that, you know, they would always be put away somewhere out of sight, out of mind, not part of society. And so I think it will change, but it's still kind of got a long way to go. Uh, when you say, uh, uh, characters who have disabilities, the story is often about their disabilities. I, I also feel like uh, people often in media, and, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna simplify this because disability is a really wide topic, but let's specifically yeah. state people in wheelchairs as an example. I think it's often seen as someone to be pitied or rescued or, or uh, someone that you should have a lot of sympathy for but they're, they're so frequently um, not given any real personalities. It's someone who wishes they could be better or be different or wishes their body work differently. And uh, th those storylines become problematic because again, it's all about just that aspect of one, uh, the one aspect of a, of a character that could be so much more complex. And I do feel like in the last few years, we're seeing that change a little bit. Uh, but it's a, it's a complicated reality. Gabriella, did I phrase that delicately enough? Is that, is that okay? Yeah. To that? yeah, that's great. And I was actually going to add on to that, that um, it's why like terms like wheelchair bound now are really not favored in disability spaces because wheelchair bound is from a non-disabled point of view saying, oh, wow, you can't walk, you're bound to the wheelchair. Whereas like from my point of view, my wheelchair makes it so I'm not bed bound. So my wheelchair is actually my ability to go places and do things. I don't think of this as me being bound to the wheelchair because my alternative would be being stuck in bed, not being able to walk. So it's sort of, it's a, it's a definitely a mental shift that's happening. It's just 
not as fast as I want it to be. And I well, and I do try to be careful with my language. So the appropriate phrasing would be then characters in wheelchairs. Is that a yeah. is that a better way to phrase that? Yeah, wheelchair users are using wheelchairs. Yeah. Okay. Thank That's you fine. so much. And Dayspring, what were you going to say? No, I was just going to add on to the fact that you know, growing up, my my sister had a traumatic birth, and she has petty mal seizures, and she is differently abled, and her entire life. She just got so many like pity stares and pity comments. And she was so, she is, excuse me, she, she is so intelligent, so, so passionate. And it was something that always perplexed me because the idea of otherness in, in reference to her never occurred to me because she was always my older sister. You know, she did exactly what she should have done. If you've ever seen the movie Adventures in Babysitting, where it starts off and it's Elizabeth Shue singing, my sister would do that. And I, I would see her and she never felt different to me. It was only until other people started doing that. And, you know, as she's grown older and we've sat down, we've had conversations, the amount of damage that has been done to her, people used to call her the R word. People, you know, assume she isn't capable of having a conversation and I'm sorry, I'm getting a little worked up now thinking about it, but she looked at me, she's like, you know, I'm not stupid. And, and people talk to me as if I'm stupid, that I don't understand what's going on. And I know what the fuck is going on. Like people have like said that to me. And I just think, I wish she had grown up with more representation, with conversations around what, what she has. Again, in her case, it's petty mal seizures, which she has these micro seizures every, every few minutes. And no one ever properly gave her a talk about it. And they just lumped her into some kind of category and used terms and, and phrases that was, that were traumatic for her, you know? And even when I talk to her now, I have to like certain words that were considered acceptable in the nineties are far from acceptable and did so much damage to her. And she just accepted it. And it, it just infuriates me that there's a, not a lot of people out there who think about what they're, what their words do for other people and how they can't at least be aware of it. If that makes any sense. Uh, Gabriella, did you want to comment on that at all? Um, no, I just, I, I can relate to what you're saying. I feel it, <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard. Um, I think that maybe this should be talked about later, but I really think disability I think every um, marginalized status is, status is different um, depending on what it is. Every identity that is not, you know, non-disabled, white, male, straight, cis, all of like the normal quote unquote things um, are different. And I think with disability, it, it's really hard because our civil rights movement has kept having stops and starts. So we had um, disability rights activists had, you know, done a ton of protesting um, to make sure that the Rehabilitation Act passed in the 70s. And when that happened, they wrote the law, but the regulations that told uh, lawmakers how to implement the law were not passed. So the law was a piece of paper. It didn't do anything for many, many years. And they had to do sit-ins at, you know, the Capitol building. Um, if anybody wants a really good recommendation of uh, learning more about that, the movie Crip Camp on Netflix is amazing. It talks all about that, but they were climbing up the Capitol steps 
out of their wheelchairs, you know, just army crawling up the steps to do a protest. And that kind of thing was really necessary back then because we didn't have any right, we didn't have the ability to go places, you know, we didn't have any kind of freedoms or anything. And I think now growing up the way I've grown up, I've been very lucky, but even as I get older, I've seen, you know, it was really harmful looking back at my elementary school pictures and seeing the class photo where I'm way off to the side because they decided to do it on bleachers, which makes no sense in the middle of the bleachers. So I couldn't be up against the side. I had to be way off to the side or way in front or not lined up with everybody. You know, that's such an easy fix. Just do chairs. Like it's not, it's not rocket science. It's not that complicated to make it better, but it just wasn't really thought of back then. And that's, that those, um, kind of echoes of trauma, I think are going to happen for a really long time because I have it. If I ever have kids, they're going to probably find out I went through all that. If they're disabled also, they're going to know that that's part of their history. And, um, you know, I know what the generation before me went through. And I think knowing that and knowing that there's still so long to go before people with disabilities are really treated equally can be really overwhelmingly stressful, um, especially when you're a disability activist and you're trying to help move things along and it's just doesn't always work. Um, that can be really frustrating. So I, I understand them. And, and you realize that the government has absolutely no protocol or sense on how to manage things like this, because every case is unique, everything is different, but, in the, in the case of my sister, and, and we're from Florida, so, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of obstacles there. It just baffles me, you know, when she goes to a doctor and the neurologist will fire her as a patient mm-hmm. and because she's, she's being whatever she is. She's being meticulous. In my sister's case, she's very meticulous about her health, so she can call a lot. And, and there's no, so, and when we talk to the social workers, there's, they're like, oh, well, well, I guess we'll find another one. It's like, what? No. Like your job here is to help support and and give the resources here. And it's so incredibly frustrating and it just, it infuriates me so much. So by the, by the way, in reading your blog, I just, the, the, the blog you, you post, you had about uh, marriage proposal and, Mm -hmm. and getting engaged and your anxiety surrounding that. I mean, I thought it was just so beautifully done about how this is supposed to be the happiest moment of your life, but now you have to fear that these rights or, or, or the support that you're getting is going to be taken away. And this is helping you live. It just, thank you so much for having such a strong voice. Oh yeah. Well, thank you for listening. And I, that's why I love doing things like this because X-Men and things like X-Men where I feel like there's good representation of disability helps take my issues out of myself and mm-hmm. externalize them and see like, okay, this works, this doesn't work. Let's try this. And I think when you're thinking about yourself and the trauma that you're going through all the time, it becomes just completely demoralizing where when you can externalize it and kind of see from a more objective point of view what needs to happen and what effects you know certain kinds of language have on people, it can be really, really beneficial for you as a person and as an activist moving forward too. Like think, even, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Despair. Oh no, I was just going to even say like even 
the, the blog post you had about, and, I, and I'm sorry, I, I don't remember the name of the treatment, but instead of it being a spinal injection, it was now coming in a pill format. And mm-hmm. you were confronting these ideas of what it means to be cured and, and, and how even that applies to the X-Men. Yeah. And, I mean, I just, I really, I just, again, I, I, I said this before we hit record, had I discovered you when I was an editor at HarperCollins, I'd be like, we need to get this person to book deal immediately. And just, oh, thank you. I think everyone just needs to read your, the, the words you put out there, but I'm sorry. Sorry, Chad, I cut you off. Oh no, you're great. I was, I was going to say, I think so often because we have been marginalized by society, we end up taking those terms or the, or the things about us that are marginalized and they become such a primary or prominent part of our uh, identity. I had to fight so hard to come to love myself as a gay man that now I'm like the gay dad or the gay therapist or the gay podcaster. It becomes almost the word. And I'm proud of that. But I also there's so much more to me than that. Uh, and and Gabrielle, I don't know what that's like for you at times. I mean, you are a, a budding attorney and a talented writer and you have a vibrant love life and family and all these things. Uh, uh, do you ever feel marginalized as the person who is speaking about disabilities? Um, You know, it's gotten better as I've gotten older. Um, when I so. I'm not going to tell my entire life story, but this is kind of relevant to X-Men also. So when I was in college, um, I uh, wanted to be a filmmaker. And so I started doing the film program and it was really difficult because I was in mid-Missouri. There was nothing going on. Like there was, there was no, there was no ability to like really turn that into the kind of career that I wanted at least. I know people have been successful, but and I'm not trying to talk bad about my college, but it was sort of a difficult um, situation for me because I wanted to move out to California and I wasn't able to because Medicaid does not transfer state to state and I need Medicaid for um, a lot of my health stuff and for my caregivers. And so there's no transfer system. So if I wanted to move out of state, I would have to start over, get on the waiting list for Medicaid and then get on the waiting list for whatever waiver program they had, which might not have given me enough care. So it's a whole like issue that I was running into and I got really, really depressed and it was probably the lowest point in my life. And I, when I was in college, um, I was, I decided to do study abroad and my parents helped me a lot with it. And it was on the plane to Greece where I did study abroad that I watched X-Men first class. And then when I was on my way there, I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like, you know, I like that Mystique has a story about being proud of being a mutant. That's kind of cool, like interesting. As like a very surface level analysis and a lot of things um, happened to me on that trip. A lot of the things I went through really helped me solidify my identity as somebody with a disability and that that wasn't something that I needed to hide or be ashamed of. And then on the way back, I watched it again and I, it was a completely different experience watching it. Like I was like, oh my, this is talking to me. and. <laughs> watching going through and watching all the old movies again um the whole cure storyline I was like how the hell did I watch this as a kid and not see it like how did I how did I just graze past it and think oh I like Bobby he's pretty cute or like oh how did how did I I like works here you know it was such a surface level viewing and as I got older I just really started appreciating it a lot more that and the fact that None of the mutants are like a monolith, just like disability. So one of the big plots in um, X-Men First Class is Mystique has a different 
experience as a mutant than like Hank does and then Charles does. And at that time, Charles is able to walk. So he is just pure privilege, basically. He is rich, he's white, he's straight, he's cis, he's non-disabled, he's kind of able to do all these things and she's none of those things. And so it's kind of a different experience for her as a mutant. And I really, I really deeply felt that. And I felt that kind of speak to me deeply about how I feel about being disabled and how the people who I had been talking to about disability really did not get it. It was, you know, people like Charles who were like, yeah, I've gone through issues too. It's really hard. And it was like, yeah, but you haven't like, you haven't like been denied entry places. You haven't like, you know, been denied service at nail salons. You haven't, you haven't gone to a birthday party and found out you couldn't go into the building because there were steps and that's illegal, but who are you going to tell? Because there's no hotline and they don't really do anything. You can call the justice department, but they're not going to do anything about it. You know, like situations like that, where the, the amount of issues I have gone through were so different than the people around me that thinking of myself as a mutant really helped me see, okay, so I'm not wrong to think these things. I'm not wrong to go through them. I'm just different and people don't get it. And that's not my fault, but I can help explain to other people what my experience has been like. And that can be where I focus my energy rather than masking and trying to hide a disability that if you look at me, you can see it's there, you know, it's, it's, it's not hideable. So there, uh, there's a, a thing about mutants, and of course, this is a fictional universe, but they come from every walk of life. Mm-hmm. It's every socioeconomic status, every race, every country, just like queer people, just like disabled people. We come from every corner, just like transgender people. Uh, mm-hmm. We come from every corner. And one of the big messages of the X-Men is learning how to love yourself, which often means leaving people behind that have hurt you and forming your own family. So uh, if we focus on Charles Xavier for a few minutes, and I'm going to be transparent, this will not surprise anyone, but I am not a large Charles Xavier fan. In fact, we've uh, we've often... It's okay, me either. (laughs) We've often, my my co-host Heather sings uh, her little Charles is a dick ditty every episode, and we often call him the true villain. Uh, but he is a sympathetic character in many ways, and frankly, a very heroic character in a lot of ways. So mm-hmm. some things we want to consider about him briefly, he does have a lot of childhood trauma. He is an orphan who was raised by a stepfather who was very physically violent, bullied by his stepbrother. Uh, he is a veteran who saw a lot of combat and a lot of death. Uh, he's also a character of a lot of privilege. Now, he uh, he lost the use of his legs, the canon is, after he fought the villainous Lucifer in Tibet and a large stone slab dropped on him and he, uh, he ended up in a wheelchair. And one of the conversations we've had on the podcast, in the early 60s books in particular, he will sometimes think of himself as a cripple or as lame or as hopeless. He very much envies the students the use of their legs. Uh, sometimes... Uh, he's lusting after Jean Grey <laughs> doing things, uh, but it, he's, it's almost as though he has accepted uh, a station in life that is less than because he's grieving the use of his legs uh, and, and their loss. Now, as an individual, he needs to be able to grieve, of course. And uh, he's also a very powerful, strong character who is very capable in doing a lot of things. 
Now, we all we want to note as we analyze this fictional character, he's being written by able-bodied writers, uh, which is where some of the pro- problematic portrayal comes in. But we see a lot of images in the original books with Charles being kind of lifted around by Jean with her telekinesis or carried by the angel or beast, uh, even as he's fighting these major villains with this crazy powerful mind that he can shoot into space and erase people's minds and memories with just a thought. So he's extraordinarily powerful, even though he's often shown as very helpless and and kind of self-hating, frankly, at times. Uh, So let's talk about this portrayal of a character like this in the 1960s. What does it mean? What are the problems? How do we feel about him? Do you want to go first or do you want me to? Gabriella, why don't you go first? Yeah, go first. Okay. So, um, you know, I, for one, kind of like that they don't make his entire story about trauma. Um, I think that story is really overdone for the most part. Um, There is a way that you can go through life without focusing on your disability and what it takes from you every single second. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be like rainbows and sunshine all day long, but I think there is there is too much of a focus on disability from a non-disabled perspective, which is, oh no, I'm disabled as opposed to being, I'm disabled as opposed to being able-bodied and think about what I could be if I was able-bodied. Like everybody has those thoughts, but if they're encroaching into your daily life to the point that you can't function, then you need to see a therapist. Like you, <laughs> you gotta get that figured out. You know, you're not gonna be a happy person. You're not gonna go through life in a good way. Um, well, and I think it's just like we we are weary of the gay story being told in that way. It doesn't always, yeah. you know what, like, I don't want to think, see characters constantly contemplating suicide and being bullied. You just want to see them loving yeah. themselves. It's an, yeah. it's an overdone story. Well, you want to see that evolution. I'm so sorry to interrupt. You just want to see that evolution in the narrative of a character, right? I mean, growing up, seeing all these LGBTQIA plus stories that I, I would either read about or watch on, on, on a VHS I got Blockbuster and it dealt with coming out over and over again. It's like, well, what, what else is to this character? You know, like how I should flush it out a little bit more. So I agree. Uh, Gabriella, continue. Yeah. I forgot my train of thought. Cause oh, I was I'm so sorry. What you were saying. <laughs> so we, uh, we were, we were talking about him kind of grieving his disability at times and still being kind of having the, the counterpoint of him being the most powerful person in the room who saves the day almost, almost every issue yeah. back then. Yeah. So, you know, reading those stories just makes me really sad because I think of all the opportunities they missed, like, how cool would it be for him to just show up somewhere in his wheelchair and be like, you know what? Crap, there's a step. All right, well, I'm just going to actually project, be right back. And then that to be the story rather than, oh, well, I'm, I'm a cripple. I can't. I'm, I'm, I'm just not able to do anything. I hate it. Like, just pick me up, Jean. Make me walk so I don't have to worry about this being bound to a wheelchair anymore. You know, that kind of mentality. It could have been so much better, but disabled writers were not giving that job so it was kind of rough but I think um I think it's better now I think they still have problems like I know the movies a lot better than I know the comics and they still do things like why in X-Men first class did he have to be non-disabled like why couldn't he already be in a wheelchair it'd be fine yes I know it was part of the plot at the end but it didn't really have to be it could have just been a thing that happened to him before and you didn't have to think about it. And then you could have found a disabled actor to be 
Professor X because that still hasn't happened and that would be really cool. And I think as we move forward through the movies, especially, you know, it was so exciting for me to see first class and think, wow, they're going to put James McAvoy in a wheelchair and then watching Days of Future Past and he can walk because Hank found a cure. And then, you know, okay. And then Apocalypse, okay, he starts out in a wheelchair, but then, you know, oh, he's doing like the dream thing with Apocalypse and he's non-disabled again. What a surprise. I guess James McAvoy didn't want to sit down. Like that kind of thing. I think it could, there's so many opportunities that there could be to just not tell that story again, not make it a thing. Just put him in a wheelchair and leave him there. He's fine. For the most part, especially today, like you can get most places. And if there's a place you can't get, great. He has the ability to astrally project. And that's when you use that, not all the time. And, you know, there's a lot of things that it sounds silly now that I've said all that, but I don't know how he gets around his house because there's a lot of steps in his house. But but it's not silly what you, what you just said, because I remember when I saw Days of Future Past, the first thing I noted, it's like, why are they giving him an injection so so he can so he can walk? It's because they don't want to deal with that plot point. And that's ridiculous because by doing that plot point, you have made it a thing when you could have just not made it a thing to begin with. And, and they should have no been- one would no one would have cared. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it would not have been a point, but you went out of your way to make it a point. And why didn't they just go all the way and say, oh, you know, part of his trauma about having to hear all these thoughts is also being disabled because he can't separate those two things because it was part, he was shot by Magneto by accident and that was part of his trauma. Like that would have been awesome, but they didn't do that. They just said, oh yeah, um, I cured myself of, you know, being able to hear everything. Oh, and also it makes me walk. So that's a plus. Like, which doesn't even make sense yeah like, how are does... the two even related like and i know we have to suspend disbelief here but like it doesn't make any sense like obje- yeah. even within the context of that world building there's yeah. nothing about it that makes sense and i remember just thinking like uh i i do i i want to piggyback off what you were saying about mystique though in first class because i thought she had such a wonderful journey in that movie and this is of course, for people at home who are listening, this is before J-Law became Katniss Everdeen. So yeah. <laughs> she was she was still indie and she really poured a lot in that performance. And that opening scene where we see Charles and his privilege at a bar hitting on this girl who has different color eyes and she's a mutant and she says mutant and proud. And Mystique is sort of brushing her teeth later on and she's blue. She goes mutant and proud. Mm-hmm. And then it's so rewarding at the end when she understands that and she takes that ownership back and she goes and Charles muted and proud. Like it just gives you goosebumps when you hear something like that. And, and that's why I think some of us were disappointed with Jennifer Lawrence later in the movies because we didn't get that uh, Brio in, 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 in her performance. And, and to the point that these rumors that she didn't even want to be painted blue when you're like, but that was the entire point of Mystique, that she wasn't passing, that she didn't have that privilege, and yet she can overcome that and embrace it as not as a flaw, but as a strength. That's something that makes her unique and powerful and gives her agency of her own story. And now you have mm-hmm. the actress who doesn't even want to be painted blue. 
you know, for the later movies. Yeah, it's well, so infuriating. Sorry, well, that, that, that's my J-Law rant for the episode. No, I'm very glad you went on it because if you didn't do it, I would have done it. But, you know, that's, I th- and that's another thing that they had a better opportunity to make it a better story. In Days of Future Past, she was basically a terrorist. She was like trying to hide and blend in with the crowd. That would have been so profound if they had even mentioned that she did not want to look like a human, like a non-mutant, I guess. And if they had said, if she had said at any point, like, I hate having to put on this skin or like, I hate having to look normal or something, it would have sold it for me. I would have been like, yes, dude, that was such a good turn for the character to have to take because so often when you have a disability, you have to hide it in certain environments or you have to play it off in certain environments or you have to, you know, not be in the way or not. Like one thing that I just want to bring up is um, growing up, I, when you go to restaurants and you have a wheelchair, your wheelchair always sticks out and makes the waiters trip. It's just like a thing that happens everywhere because they always cram in more tables than they should into a restaurant. And I remember I always... Growing up, I always felt like I was in the way. Like I always felt like I had to pull in further. And there were some times where I'd be eating and my mom would be like, why are you sitting like that? Because I would be pushed into the table until the table was like hitting my stomach. Like I would be just all the way in so that nobody would trip behind me. And finally, when I got to be older, I was like, you know what? It's I'm sorry, but like, it's their fault, not my fault that they don't have room. I under, I don't, I'm not trying to like make anybody trip, but but if they don't want to trip, maybe they should move the other shares out of the way. Or if they, maybe maybe there should be a bigger issue that shouldn't be me, you know, trying to hide my disability. And right. that would that kind of thing, like that's a very real story for me. And I think they could have done so much with her story that they just didn't do. I think because they didn't know how, they didn't know how to make a, a woman confident in not looking like the societal norm of being really really pretty and blonde so now, on the flip side of that i i uh, i don't know jennifer lawrence but if i had to sit in that chair and get my skin painted blue for seven hours a day for six months at a time i can only imagine what that would do to my <laughs> <laughs> uh, but focusing... the technology has changed since Rebecca <laughs> it has. focusing um focusing back on professor x so we we just kind of focused on the problematic portrayals but let's focus on the other side here is this character in a wheelchair who is often the one that saves the day, often harshly. And I'm not a big fan. He would come in and like wipe their minds or erase their memories. Sometimes uh, he shot his brain across space to summon the stranger one time when they're when they're fighting bad guys. Uh, but he he is the most powerful person in the room. He is the orchestrator, the funder, the backer, the trainer, the teacher, the father figure. He's the central character in those original books. And even though you don't have a, a lot of heart for him sometimes because he's an asshole, he uh, he really is the heart of the X-Men. The X-Men exist because of him. Uh, and to see, uh, I, I don't know, if I, I, I'm imagining people in wheelchairs or with disabilities reading comics in the 60s and from then on, because people are still finding uh, inspiration in his character. I, it it must have been incredible to see that representation. Uh, it, there's there was no one back then saying hi I'm a gay character and you know queer people would have flocked to that of course but it was it was too problematic. What are some of our thoughts on him being the most powerful guy? I, I think it's kind of amazing in some ways. Do you want to go first? Oh no, I was just gonna say I think it's amazing. I have no notes. 
Okay. <laughs> no, I, it's kind of echoing what I said earlier. I, I think it was Stan Lee being progressive, putting that character front and center and showing him being the most powerful mutant on the planet. That was, you know, defying literary tropes at the time. And, and he is the heart and soul of the X-Men. Listen, it's a very difficult thing to say right now because personally, I think Xavier is a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> so try, trying to just focus on the positive aspects of the actual representation of the character in, in, in perspective of literature and stuff, of course. And I, and I have to tell you, I grew up watching him on the X-Men animated series. And again, this is while my brain was still cooking and developing and I was figuring out the world. I grew up in a household where we only spoke Spanish because we're, we're, we're Cuban. My sister was, you know, had petty mal seizures and, and we had, you know, family gathering around that. I was LGBTQIA plus and I had an inkling that I was. So seeing the X-Men, specifically Xavier in a wheelchair, it, it felt very normal when I was seeing that in terms of representation. It did not feel odd at all. So I think that was great that it, that was out there for, for a certain generation to see and to see that someone was very capable and they weren't defined by any hurdles or disabilities in their narrative. And in fact, I'm trying to think with the animated series and, and again, forgive me because I do have my brain fog today. I don't think they overtly ever went into how he got into that wheelchair. He, it's just his story. He founded the school and Xavier for all intents and purposes is supposed to be, you know, a, a leader and, and a paternal figure to, to these individuals. So I thought it was, you know, kudos to him on that. Kudos yeah, to I that thought, representation. I thought the cartoon handled him pretty well. Actually. Yeah. It was, it was never a focal point. It just was the thing. Uh, Gabriel, would you agree? Did you watch the, the animated series much? So I didn't. I tried before this uh, recording, but I did not have time. Oh yeah, so. it's okay. It's long and there's it's boring sometimes. But yeah, I, I, will, I, I will. I will before the uh, before the the reboot or whatever is going to be. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god, we all have to watch it together. I yeah. watched it. I watched it with my children for the first time this last year, and uh, it it was a lot of fun. Now we also just got through an arc, and this will just be a brief mention. There's three issues. I think it's uh, 24, 25, 26 in the X Men where. Professor X has designed himself a, a set of walking leg braces that allow him to walk around. And in two issues in a row, he puts on these ridiculous disguises. In one, he looks like the invisible man covered head to toe. And in the other, he looks like a, like a sea captain. And he, instead of using his powers, he just kind of sneaks up on the villains and tries to be their friends. And then he zaps them with his mind. And, uh, and then the third time they show the braces, he's trying to demonstrate them for the students and they malfunction and he falls down the stairs, but a pair of mechanical tentacles comes out from the wall and grabs him. And he's like, I'm fine. I designed these tentacles here just in case I fell. Uh, it's, it's, okay. such a, it's such a weird brief bend for the character. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that, but it's a very strange arc for him. I you, One of the things that's always bugged me with the X-Men and, and not specifically this moment you're talking about, but Jean Grey's funeral, where Hank is wearing a rubber mask to hide his beastly self. I'm just like, sometimes they just wave their hands and they're like, oh, my my mutant powers or anything isn't a thing in this situation. And it's sort of what you were saying, Gabriella, about you, there are situations where you work so hard to have agency over yourself and your story. And I've had to walk into situations being LGBTQIA+, where I I felt I've had to tamper down who I am. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And it feels so wrong. And, you know, I think about the scene with with Beast where it's like, you can just put on your mask and, and go to a funeral. But like the more interesting aspect of it is seeing Beast being who he is and showing up to a funeral and, and navigating that. And I can't help but wonder, that would have given me a lot more life lessons and tools for me growing up had I seen a character be able to deal with that. And I know we're talking about cisgender white guys who are probably writing these X-Men, the, the, these, these characters, that they had no, they, they, I, th I do think their heart was in the right place when trying to tackle ideas of otherness, but just didn't quite nail those fine nuances that define us and those micro traumas that we, we still carry with us, unfortunately, till this day, even when we're with like-minded individuals, I'm still cognizant of, 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 of what I am and, and my energy and what I put out there that I wish we wouldn't have had scenes where Xavier has leg braces or, or takes an injection or they wear a rubber mask or Nightcrawler, I think, had like a hologram. The uh, so image, image inducer. Image inducer so he can pass through society. It just... In real life, there are people who just don't have the ability to pass as normative or, in my case, heteronormative. And it, it, it just, I wish those scenes didn't exist. Now, in reference to mm -hmm. Xavier and in-universe, on point, of course he would <laughs> build tentacles and be like, don't worry about it. These tentacles coming out of the walls. Ha ha ha, I did this all myself. Like, of course, that's such an Xavier thing to do. Uh, one more Xavier story I'll throw out there, and this is maybe the most jarring from the original run. The X-Men uh, uh, are fighting Magneto. Xavier stops a bomb from exploding, and uh, he loses his powers, quote-unquote. And so for an entire issue, he has the teens, like, bring him tea. They're, like, lifting him in the air, covering him in blankets, taking care of him. He's entirely helpless then they rush off to space to fight Magneto and almost die. And he saves the day, Professor X does. And when they get back home in the final panel of the issue, he goes, by the way, I was just kidding. I was never sick. I had my powers the whole time. This was a test. And I'm like, oh, you fucker. <laughs> like, when we read this on the podcast, we were like, oh my God, that's so, that's so terrible. Uh, he's a, uh, I, I like that he's complex. I like that there's multiple layers to him. Um, one more thing I'll throw out, and Gabriella, let me ask your point on this, or, or, or maybe we've kind of already covered it. Uh, Xavier is clearly one particular character that does not like being in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. He seems to not like his disability. He does his best, but he has been cured and paralyzed and cured and paralyzed and killed and resurrected <laughs> and uh, and has as currently uh, has his ability to walk again. Uh, what's it like? I don't know if you have an answer to this or not. What's it like seeing this character go through these changes multiple times, gain the ability to walk and lose it over and over across the decades? Yeah, so um, this is going to be a roundabout answer, but it is an answer. Um, you know, um, I think it's fine. If you're disabled and you don't want to be disabled, I'm not going to tell people how to be disabled. I think there is a lot of there are a lot of issues that you have to work through in a way that only you can with coming to terms with your disability. Um, I think it's difficult to remain proud of being disabled when you live in a really ableist society. It's hard. A lot of times, I think it would be a lot easier to just not be. Um, and you know. I don't really, I don't really put any 
um, negativity towards Xavier himself because, I mean, shit, if I could make, if, if I could be caught by mechanical tentacles falling down the stairs, fuck yeah, I would do that. Are you kidding me? Like, that's amazing. Are you, yes. Um, and I think that'd be so cool. But I think what it's done as, then this, I don't think this can just be blamed on X-Men, but just as a society, there are a lot of pure storylines, a lot of people becoming victorious over their disability and not having it anymore, or becoming victorious and having to deal with it less or whatever. And I think that's what that's done is it's caused really unrealistic expectations for treatments and for other medical changes. Um, like my treatment that I've been on for just over a year now, um, it hasn't really done a lot for me. And there, it hasn't done a lot for a lot of people. And a lot of them were very upset about it because they thought they'd be able to walk by now. And that kind of disappointment is debilitating. And it's very upsetting when you feel it. It's very upsetting when you think, wow, I can be normal. And then you're just not. And yes, that needs to be fixed with therapy and that needs to be fixed individually. But society could also do a much better job of not having normalcy be the goal, especially when it's a story like X-Men where there's no, there, who, why would you want to be normal? You can have superpowers, you know? Um, and I do just, I do just want to point out um, when he was, uh, when he got his powers taken away, did he also regain his ability to walk? No curious i wonder why i wonder why they put that in days of future past then that it was like the same thing hmm. mm. it's almost like there was an agenda to not have him you know, <laughs> using a wheelchair anymore it's almost like they did that on purpose but i don't know i'm not a writer who knows i'm sensing sarcasm gabriella that's my that's my superpower you, my sarcasm detector is going off now in the current x-men books uh, and this is my next question we have characters that can be resurrected so death has been removed from mutants. If you die, you can be resurrected in a new body. And there's some fascinating stories that are taking place. Now, I'm really happy we've got some diverse writers, some queer and, and uh, uh, gender nonconforming and female writers and writers of color. I feel like we're getting some more portrayal of characters. So let me give five examples of how the resurrection protocols are complex. And let's talk about it briefly. Charles Xavier, number one has been resurrected with the use of his legs, which is something we can presume he requested. We have a character named Kid Omega who keeps dying and there's kind of a funny arc in X-Force about how he'll be like, hey, next time you bring me back, make it so I don't need my glasses anymore and also make my penis a little bit bigger because I wanna, <laughs> I wanna improve things about my body. There's number two. Number three, we have a character named Wizkid who is in a wheelchair. Uh, and in a recent issue of S.W.O.R.D., I feel like we had a really incredible insight into his character, uh, showing his kind of pride and struggle at the same time uh, uh, of being in a wheelchair. But he doesn't want to die, even though he could die and be resurrected with the use of his legs. He is happy in the body he's in. We have uh, Karma in The New Mutants, who was, who was killed and chose to be resurrected with uh with her cybernetic leg she has a she lost her leg and has a prosthetic so she chose to be resurrected with her prosthetic showing that she loves the body that she's in and then finally we also have in the new mutants a character named cosmar 
who is kind of trapped in what she considers kind of a hideous appearance, quote unquote, and has asked for the privilege of being able to die so that she could be resurrected in a better body. So I'm kind of tying all this up together to show the complexities of the types of stories we're telling and how I love that we have a lot of different representation from different types of characters and different relationships with their bodies or, or, or these protocols. Uh, let me hear some of your thoughts. And if you want to bring in other examples, of course, that's fine too. But let's hear some of your thoughts on the portrayal of these characters in the comics now in the 2020s. Do you want me to go first? Yeah. Yeah, I, so, you know, I think when I first started reading S.W.O.R.D., back when it came out last year, I was so happy that there was a kid like WizKid that was very proud of his body and didn't feel he needed to be resurrected. And I thought that was wonderful. My main qualm, and I, and I love these characters having agencies and being able to decide if they, if they want to be resurrected, you know, with the use of their legs without any, with, with however they want to be. I think that's great. I mean, that's the entire point of the Krakoan experiment right now in the comic books. But my, well, my main qualm with Xavier and to, to swing it back to DC as well with Barbara Gordon, two very big iconic characters who, ha who, who were in wheelchairs are no longer in wheelchairs right now. And I feel like the focus in general of of normalcy and this goal that society has is just so unrealistic and so upsetting. A major change for me when I was a feminist study in, in college was the idea about biological sex and that, you know, there's only male and female, but then you start looking at this closely and no, sex, biological sex is on a spectrum itself. And, and I think about that in terms of ableism and, and our bodies and everyone in their life is going to experience a time where their bodies are not going to be functioning in the way that's quote unquote normal. So I don't understand why that, the, why there's this obsession with having to, to be a certain way and, and, and writers portraying characters like that. For me, Barbara Gordon was eons better as Oracle. And in fact, as a reader, I've moved, we've moved past what happened in The Killing Joke. And we're like, yeah, if you need information, if you need some sort of techno wizardry to be done, Oracle's person, she's a much better character as Oracle. I, I, I find very few people like her as Batgirl over o Oracle. So with Xavier, I mean, fine, sure. I mean, he's an <clears throat> egotistical maniac who murdered his sister in the womb. You know what I mean? Like, he, he didn't come out as a mutant until Morrison's X-Men run in like 2001. So he's always struggled a bit with his identity and stuff like that. But I am glad that we have characters like Karma and WizKid who understand the value of their body and don't think that there's anything wrong with it and, and, and choose to be resurrected with it how it was before. Sorry, I, I ranted somewhere in there. No, <laughs> Hopefully there's an answer to something you said. I think we all have some rants. I think that's wonderful. Gabriella, let me hear your thoughts. Yeah. Um, by the way, I'm sorry I cleared my throat. I tried to mute and I didn't mute. Oh, you're so fine. I yeah, you're okay. You. Um, <laughs> how could you? I know. How Audible gas. How dare you? <laughs> um, yeah, I think, you know... The, the thing about disability that people don't realize is I'm not going to go like full leftist as my family would say, but um, 
it's really the the concept of disability is very situational and it's also very tied down to capitalism which i'm just going to say really really quick which is um it's a lot of it is based on your ability to work and your ability to make money and yeah. when society values your ability to work and make money the people who are not disabled or who are disabled um and not as able to work and make money kind of defy the promise of the american dream which is it doesn't matter where you start if you pull yourself up by the bootstraps you can be president of the united states you can be top of the food chain you can be anything you want which i mean like we know isn't true and i think the the desire to kind of stamp out disability can get to a really dangerous place with eugenics um and not to be too dramatic but the holocaust went after disabled people first disabled people were who they tested the chemicals on because they came around and said, oh, we have a school for the disabled. And they got all the disabled people out of their homes and sent them to a hospital. And then they tested out the chemical weapons on them. So that's kind of where I come from. Whereas when I hear, oh, great, you can be de dead and reborn as a non-disabled person, it makes me a little bit nervous mm -hmm. <laughs> because I think, okay, well, at what cost though? Like, I don't, I don't necessarily think that that part is part of X-Men history, like the fact that they tested the weapons on disabled people, but it is part of our history. And like, I know sure. that. And a lot of people who studied the Holocaust also know that, that that was how it started. And, you know, after the Holocaust, after all of those atrocities were kind of discovered, that's when America started saying, hey, maybe we should get our kids out of institutions. Hey, maybe we should do home and community-based services. Maybe we should not hide disability away and make it something that we never see because we don't really, when society doesn't see something, they don't know what's happening to them. Sure. So when you shut an entire population behind a lock and key, who knows what's happening to them behind the scenes? And I think not to make it really, really dark, but I'm glad that they're talking about all different choices and I'm glad that they're putting the choice in the people who will actually have to live with their choices rather than making it just something that happens. Like, I'm glad that, you know, people are able to be re reborn with disabilities if they want to, because it puts the onus of control on them and they're going to be the ones who will have to live with the consequences rather than somebody else making the choice for them or maybe having it be conditional, like, well, you can be reborn, but you won't have any of your disabilities or you'll, you'll be perfect, you know? And that also is just such an unrealistic concept because unless you get hit by a bus when you're 25 and have never been sick or had a cold, everybody's going to have some form of disability because disability is constructed based on the society you live in and based on the needs of the society you live in. So one really good example that one of my law professors uses is everybody wants to sit down when they work so offices provide chairs but you don't view a chair as a special accommodation because everybody wants to sit but if you're disabled and you go into work and you say i need a screen reader because everybody doesn't need a screen reader you're viewed as different and special and you're the one who needs an extra you know extra help or whatever and they're free to reject that so right society treats disability in such a different way depending on what kind of environment you're in that I don't think disability will ever really go away. 
And so I like that they're talking about it in a more honest way now than they were before. I think wonderful. I'm glad that kids are <laughs> able to, you know, see the whole breadth of their experience um, represented. In the most recent issue of Sword, uh, which was so impressive, and Gabriela, did you have a chance to take a look at that issue featuring WizKid? I didn't. I'm sorry. Which, no, it's completely okay. It opens with, and I haven't read it in a couple of weeks, but it opens with uh, the character WizKid in bed, and he's kind of he's kind of a little queer. He's wearing like tight pink underpants or something, and it it shows the process of him rolling over and having to lift his legs and you know get himself into his chair. Uh, but we also get this. Uh, like he's the second in command on a space station and he's got a lot of trust and power and capability. He's also kind of like a triple agent and it shows him kind of playing these guys and using his powers to trick them while he's reporting back to the people he's loyal to. It's a, it's a really impressive portrayal of a character and it's showing disability, but also showing everything else about him uh, from his, from his queerness to his power, to his very keen mind and love of self. Uh, it's it's uh, it's the opposite of the 60s portrayals of Professor X in a lot of ways. Um, let me ask you guys, yeah. uh, and, and you brought up uh, Oracle, or, uh, the, the Oracle, Barbara Gordon, right? Oracle. Uh, uh, a bit ago. What are some positive portrayals of, uh, of characters in wheelchairs uh, in comic books or as superheroes? Any that you guys can think of? I'm a huge Daredevil fan. There's a bit character in the 80s Daredevil books of a character named Becky Blake, who mm -hmm. her, her disability is really problematically portrayed sometimes back in the 80s. Uh, she's only been used a little bit, but she's gone on to become an attorney and one of Daredevil's like very trusted aides in some of the issues. Uh, so she's someone that crosses my mind. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to go back to Oracle because I thought she was absolutely wonderful in the Stephanie Brown Batgirl series. And she had a subplot with um, Wendy from Super Friends. She was a character only created for Super Friends. And um, in, in this iteration of the DC universe, which I'm sorry, DC continuity just all bleeds together in my head. But she is in a wheelchair for, for this iteration. And Barbara is sort of walking her through it. And I thought that was such a positive, wonderful portrayal of of Barbara showing like, hey, listen, this is how you know, you can get past your negative emotions and your frustrations and, you know, be a superhero. So I, I've been so disappointed since Barbara has not been Oracle anymore. And is now just Batgirl, especially since we had such a wonderful story in the Stephanie Brown series back in like, I think that was 2009, 2010. Yeah, I was, I knew about Oracle and I was for a while if you asked your if anybody has an Amazon Echo if you asked who her favorite superhero was she would say Oracle because she liked that she can do everything from a chair and had so much power and was able to you know help people using technology mm -hmm. and it was very awesome because I just I think I was just like doing 20 questions with my Echo and she said that and I was like Oh my gosh that's so amazing like I had like a little kid moment where I was like oh my god and like I called my mom and I was like mom ask your Amazon Echo who her favorite character is it's so cool and like I was just so thrilled that that happened and then to you know never mind she can walk now it's fine it's just it's just so upsetting and especially yeah. since 
Madam Web. Madam Web is, is is in a chair, and the way she moves through space and time with her chair, it's fluid. It's beautiful. It's mm-hmm. there. It, 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 it there's no there's no need to retcon a character like Oracle, especially in a medium where you can make up the rules and you can have your own world building. And I think my grievance would be more with someone. You know, and again, I don't, I don't work at DC or anything, so I'm just speculating. But I would just assume from like an intellectual property situation, people are like, "No, we want Barbara Gordon as Batgirl, and she's gonna walk, and she's gonna do all these leaps." And it's like, that's so insulting because again, it's this I obsession mean, with normalcy. Yeah, and everybody does leaps. It's Batman, of course. Like, yeah, she's like one of the regulars now. It's boring, you know. She it's boring. She's. Here. When you have someone like Madame Webb who can literally move through time and space in her chair, and that just looks visually so beautiful and different, like mm-hmm. exactly what you just said, Gabriela. Now, 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 Batgirl is just Barbara Gordon. It's just another person who does cartwheels in the air, and and that's it. What what made her so wonderful as a character? What made her stand out? What made her a fan favorite? Someone was just like, no, we want Barbara Gordon as Batgirl, and that's it. <laughs> The, the, the character lost that that uniqueness. I think characters in wheelchairs specifically, writers are most comfortable giving them powers either of the mind where they can project themselves somewhere or over technology. They're like really incredible with computers or they can build robots. Mm-hmm. That seems to be kind of the primary portrayal. I kind of want to see the characters in wheelchairs who have claws coming out of their hands and they're shooting lasers <laughs> out of their eyes. Let's like, let's see some cool stuff. Now, a few people, uh, I, I, I I gathered some intel before I did a, a, a really intense Google search and I certainly will not name all the characters, but some characters who've been seen with disabilities just in recent years or even sometimes back in the 80s, there's a character named Black Crow from Captain America. Uh, mm-hmm. From the from the Venom verse, we had Ngozi, who was uh, uh, the Black Panther kind of Venom. Uh, you mentioned Madam Web. There's Sun Spider, who's a Spider Man alternate. Uh, she's not um, she's not in a wheelchair, but the character silhouette from New Warriors is paraplegic, and uh, and is a badass kind of fighter, like strong chick. So we 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 see a lot more. Um, one that's really prominent in my mind is the character Roger Box from Alpha Flight, who can uh, uh, take himself out of his chair and and uh, like phase into the box armor and go fight with everybody. Uh, but he's a character who really hated his disability uh, back in the John Byrne series. Uh, and there's there's certainly several more, but I'm happy that we're seeing more portrayal of this uh, nowadays. Uh, Gabriela, did you have thoughts about my observation that uh, characters in wheelchairs often have either mind or tech powers? Yeah, you know, I was just thinking, so I don't know if anybody else is watching it, but my fiance and I are watching Hawkeye on Disney Plus. And yes. okay, yes. I love the fact that now he's hard of hearing because I feel like it's just a very human reaction to what he probably went through with all the booms and everything but then i i am obsessed with echo i love echo she just in the last episode they talked a little bit about her story the last one i saw which is you know she her family was not very wealthy she didn't afford the hearing aid so her dad said in sign language you know you gotta just figure it out you gotta learn to lip read or do something and that that was such a real moment for me like i was like I know so many people who are definitely like that. Like I know. Oh, and then she met Hawkeye and she pulled the hearing aid out of his ear and smashed it and was like, you don't need that. And was trying to sign 
towards him in ASL and he didn't know it because he only knew the basics because he only recently became hard of hearing. And just that whole storyline of like the different approaches that each of them had to disability and hers especially, it was, she used it as such a strength and she's a fighter. Her whole thing is that she, you know, can see somebody do a fight and learn how to do it. She, I forgot what it's called, but it's like, photographic like reflexes or yeah, something. yeah 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 and she's able to do that and that's so cool that has nothing to do with the fact that she's deaf that has nothing to do with the fact that she you know has a disability of any kind it's just a really cool power and the deafness is like on the side it doesn't have to yeah. be part of her power or part of that story it's just we also had a makari in the eternals who is a woman of yeah. color who signs and is super fast i mean we are seeing some pretty great stuff nowadays yes. it's, a, it's a nice time to be witnessing all this uh, sure, sure. this is a fantastic and valuable conversation at the very least uh, i've made some very good new friends but uh, my hope for this is that we have a lot of people who leave uh, this conversation uh, with a lot of awareness of things, uh, thinking about things in a different way than they have before. Um, and I, again, I'm so grateful for we're in an era where we're seeing positive stories being told more regularly and more delicately than they have been in the past. Um, any final thoughts from you guys? Now, I, let me be transparent for our readership. Uh, Dayspring and Gabriella are going to come back on my next episode of the podcast, which features uh, Juan Ferreira. But I realized that this conversation needed to happen and I didn't want to release a four hour episode. So we're doing this one <laughs> separately, but you'll get to hear more of Gabriella and Dayspring, uh, both on an upcoming uh, episode. Uh, and we're so excited to, to interview Juan Ferreira. It's going to be a blast. Uh, but uh, any, any uh, final thoughts uh, to conclude our conversation today? No, Chad, thank you so much for providing the, the space and the room for us to have these conversations. I think what your podcast does in the X community is so valuable and so important. And I think you're so thoughtful and going above and beyond, making sure that the whole scope of topics within the X-Men universe are tackled in very unique ways. And you know, just to piggyback off of what we were talking about with Hawkeye, I'm so glad that we're seeing this representation now in the movies and in very significant ways. Because again, in Eternals with Makari, it wasn't even a thing. It was just matter of fact, that's it, you know? And that is my hope for narratives going, you know, forward. And hopefully we're at the tail end of all those cliche tropes and and, and negativity that spew out and people have more awareness and can be a little bit more thoughtful when discussing these things. Thank you, Dayspring, for the kind words. Gabriella. Yeah, um, it's my hope. And thank you also on my end for allowing me to talk about this. I, you know, majored in film and then stopped talking about film and went to law school. So this has been no. a really awesome media analysis conversation that I've been itching to have. So wait, Gabriella, can I ask you a question? Which one did you prefer more, film school or law school? Um so okay, so that's not it's not a straightforward answer because <laughs> when I was in film school, I was going to a place that I didn't like and I was very religious and not happy about it. And so I didn't do anything fun in college. But so I was in law school for that, but law school was like so much harder and so much more work. So I don't know. Whichever one gets me more employed would be my favorite one. So whatever. I'm fine with that. But um uh so 
I really appreciate being on here. Um, this has been really awesome to talk about. And it's my hope that when kids or young adults or older adults are watching Marvel stuff or, you know, reading X-Men or doing anything, any kind of media consumption, I would like that disability seems would seem a little bit more welcoming um, as a media aspect. So I guess to say it a better way, I hope that disability is represented better moving forward. And I really hope that when disabled people watch things that they um, feel that the world is a little bit more welcoming to them. Because growing up, I really didn't feel like the world was that welcoming. I felt like I had to hide my disability in order to kind of pass. And um, I couldn't do that very well. So it was difficult. But I I hope that moving forward, that happens more often. And I, I really hope that X-Men continues um, to represent marginalized communities in the way that they do now. And I hope that it continues to be a good, comfortable place for a lot of people um, who have difficulty finding comfort in other stories. Uh, Dayspring, I love your podcast and the work that you do. I love your enthusiasm and your sincerity. Uh, Gabriella, thank you so much for your, uh, uh, I don't even want to say unique, but powerful and articulate voice, uh, both on your blog and, and in today's podcast. Uh, you uh, you are uh, very impressive and, and incredible. And I'm really excited to see what comes next for you, so long as you can survive the bar, of course. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I, uh, I have no doubt you'll make it. Uh, so uh, where can people find you guys online? And um, and then you get to introduce yourselves again in our very next episode, which I'm excited about. But, uh, but for today, where can people find you guys? Um, I am on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, pretty much everywhere um, at The Girl Who Sits. Um, and yeah, I am also on Twitch on Mondays and Thursdays, but probably going to be Mondays and Wednesdays next month. And then um, I'm hoping to start a YouTube channel. So basically just if you want to follow me, follow any of my social media because I'll be blasting everything out through there. So that'd be nice. Thank you. Fantastic. Uh, you can find Power of X-Men on all podcast platforms and YouTube. I'm predominantly on Instagram at Power of X-Men. I only use Twitter when Chad DMs me on there <laughs> or, or, or when Instagram goes down and I need a social media fix. But uh, Power of X-Men on Instagram. And, you know, I'm very proud of the, the podcast and the different voices we have on there. And hopefully we'll have you guys on there again very soon for our new season. Anytime. Uh, I, uh, I, my social media is private uh, just because I've got my kiddos and my little life on there. Uh, but you can find Gray Malkin Lane on uh, Instagram under that name. I'm constantly posting. We're doing uh, a lot of crazy stuff with the Beast this week. Uh, and uh, we're also on Twitter under Gray Malkin P, P like podcast where we're posting consistent content from uh, the issues we're reviewing during the week as well. Uh, what an absolute pleasure to uh, commune with you both today. Thank you. And uh, we'll see you guys back here uh, in a few days. Uh, uh, and see the rest of you guys here next week uh, back on Gray Malkin Lane when we're reviewing our uh, very next episode. Have a beautiful day. Bye.